Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. This week, we're going to be speaking with Ursula Cheer. Now, Ursula is the dean of the Canterbury Law School, and we have a really great conversation about the fact that she's really had three careers from studying law. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. Well, the yeah. skills are extremely transferable, and yeah. I always, when I talk about a law degree, I say, look, it's basically a very high-quality communication degree. It's Mm. about communication in Mm. every way, oral, written. You know, you've got to have the legal knowledge at the back of it and you've got to have analytical skills as well. But, you know, as I say, I've had three really good careers out Mm. of my law degree and uh, law is fascinating. Mm. And it also gives you the power to do a lot of good, Mm. a lot of good. You're basically helping people Mm. uh, or trying to help people uh, and that's a great a great thing to be able to do, I think. Mm. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, and if you do, you might want to check out some of the other ones in the back catalogue. There's also a website at theseeds.nz with lots and lots of content, including several others which are law-related, probably because I work as a lawyer, so I have an interest in that area too. And I haven't made this plug for a while, but if any of you are on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave a rating or review in that platform because it helps other people to find the show as well. Now, here's the conversation with Ursula. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Ursula Cheer, who's the Dean of Law at Canterbury University. Thank you, Stephen. It's lovely to see you. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. Um, on this show, what we do is we talk about people's lives and we go back in time to find out a bit about where they're from and then we talk about what they're doing today. And as you know, I went to Canterbury Law School. Mm, I so, so it's a real privilege to be able to talk with you and just reminisce for me as well, you know, what it was like when I was a student. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about, you know, what, what are we teaching students today? Right. What, what might the future hold? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a good topic to think about. But I also like to find out about people's histories and where they're from. So if we could just start there and tell us a little bit about maybe your childhood and, and where you grew up. Sure. Well, um, I'm from right from here, Christchurch. So, And I've spent most of my life here. So right. I was born here and um, grew up uh, in Christchurch in Avonhead, the source of the River Avon. So my river is literally the Avon because... There was a stream at the end of our street, and that stream was the beginning of the River Avon. Really? Yeah. yeah. So so I feel very loyal to Christchurch and um, have stayed here, as I say, most of my life. And that time in, like, because now, of course, we will probably at some point in the interview talk about earthquakes and things, yeah. but just describe what was Christchurch like back when you were growing up, you know, as a child? What sort of a place was it? Well, of course, you know, I'm nearly 60 now, so I'm at that stage where I've got a sort of a a, a view of my past as, as sort of a golden a golden <laughs> time. So I've got to be careful about that. But I, I was born in 1960, so I grew up in the 60s. And um, I do think in spite of those, you know, rose-tinted spectacle thing that happens as you get older, the 60s were a very stable uh, time in New Zealand and Christchurch was part of that and I've just got memories of um, I grew up in a family of three daughters 
three cheers, as we say, since my surname is Cheer, so we were all three cheers. <laughs> I was the middle daughter. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a very traditional family at that time. My mother was the homemaker and dad, um, you know, went to work and made money so that uh, he could support us. And he worked as a maintenance carpenter at the Feltex mm. factory that used to be just around the corner. Mm. And, you know, that was his job for over 40 years. But he had originally come to Christchurch to... Um, do a uh, he went to university he did he did start a, a bachelor bachelor of arts degree he was going to teach um but he gave that away because my eccentricity runs on my father's side of the family and he decided he didn't like being told how to think so hmm. so he stopped that and uh, just got a job and uh, that's what he did for the rest of his life but at home he was a self-taught artist, and he also wrote endless novels, hmm. um, none of which got published. But So he wanted to have a job that he could leave behind at the end of the day and come home and um, have a family life and do the other things he wanted to do. Hmm. So I had a very stable uh, upbringing. Um, he didn't earn a very high salary. Mm. He was basically on a working class salary. So, you know, money was, was not not... Uh, an abundance in our family, but Dad, as a carpenter, did most of the. He did up the house and right, maintained things exactly yeah. all of that. So, so I guess I've got a memory of him as being a uh, very much a can-do type of hands-on Dad. Mm-hmm. Built everything, did everything, took his motorbike apart, put it back together again, yeah. and so on. We didn't have a car till I was twelve. We didn't have a TV till then. We didn't have a phone. Till then, mm. so you know, very different life really mm. to what our kids have now, and what I've been able to give my kids as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like for your father that creativity was quite a big part of his life. Then, yeah, if he would come home from works and then work on his novel or the next he, novel, he and, was rigorous about particularly his drawing. He right. had a in our living room, he'd built himself a drawing big drawing board that folded out and okay. he, he and mum would be in the living room after tea and he would spend a specific number of hours every night drawing hmm. um, and then he'd put that stuff away and uh, I, I think the writing was, was sort of the other time but the drawing he he had to do, he'd talk about it a bit and we'd ask him where his ideas came from and that sort of thing and he'd dreams he'd, he'd dream the things he had to get up and you know draw whatever he'd dreamed about the night before so hmm. so um and you mentioned the word eccentric before yes. so was that that was the best word to describe him would you say or? well uh eccentric in the sense that he didn't care about fitting in mm-hmm. and he did what he wanted to do and um you know, that must have made life a bit tough for mum. She had to sort of manage the money mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, make sure all the bills were paid and all of that out of his his smallish um, wage that he brought home. So, so she did all the sort of nuts and bolts of managing the house and sewing all our clothes and mending his clothes and mm-hmm. whereas he got to be the sort of creative fellow around right. all that. I'm yeah. working on my novel or I'm yeah. drawing my dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. but he was a very charming man and um, loved talking mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, he, he was very easy for people to get on with and uh, yeah. 
Um, and in your career, you it, you know, being a lawyer and and writing becomes a big part of that. Would you trace back some of your, I guess, your love of words and writing? Would it would it have an origin with your father? Do you think? Or well, or and did it come out in your childhood, or yes, was it later on? Or? I think so. I mean, my parents both loved reading, mm-hmm. and he, uh, um, they in fact met through mum worked in Whitcomb and Tombs before it was Whitcalls, ah. uh, selling books, and so she she met him, he would come into town every Friday night when he was a student and buy a book, and that's how they met, and um, huh. he collected books, so um, when he died, there were 6,000 books in the house, Wow. Um, you know, and he, he had them all arranged to his own a special system by okay. really by by country, I think more than anything else. So he <laughs> he collected books from everywhere, both secondhand and new. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, as I say, we had to find ways of of what what to do with these books. And and of course, at the time that happened, it was quite hard to get rid of books. Actually, right. people don't want them anymore, and people don't read, and even giving them to libraries and so on. Um, I gave some to the University of Canterbury and they, they came out and the librarians were wonderful. They had a good look through the collection and took away some beautiful folio books. Uh-huh. And uh, But a year later they gave them back to me because they don't have the space for them anymore and they're not having hard copy collections anymore. It wow. just isn't, which was sad. I yeah. felt very sad about that. So mum and dad encouraged us to read from an early age mm-hmm. and... Um, to we so I read quite adult books when I was young, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but Dad had more to do with me doing law, I guess, in the sense that I was at high school and there was always kind of an assumption that I'd go to university, mm-hmm. and but what would I do there? And there was no law in our family; it wasn't um, a question of of sort of you know following in the yeah footsteps yeah of the exactly uncle or not at all yeah. but dad suggested to me when I was sixteen you know why don't you leave school now and go to university and do law hmm. and I hadn't really discussed it with him before but I wasn't ready to go at sixteen I I was afraid to leave my friends mm-hmm. and also because of course he was saying do law I rejected it out of hand immediately mm. and um, so is that a conversation you remember sitting with him I do really? I remember yeah. it quite clearly huh. and uh, uh, yeah so but a year later of course after I'd done my seventh form which is year 13 now of course I still had to make that decision and I suppose I almost made it by default in a way I because it had been suggested to me right. I, I said oh well I might as well yeah. And, you know, that sounds uh, – talking to other lawyers who are, um, you know, who loved the law and wanted to do the law from a very young age and so on, I wasn't like that. But I enjoyed school and I enjoyed reading and I enjoyed study. So I knew, mm. you know, I'd probably be okay at law and I was interested in it enough to, mm. to do it. And, and But maybe in a way, you know, I didn't really, I didn't have an epiphany or a moment where I thought I've got to do law. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I I grew to love the law. Mm. You know, it was something that grew on me. And this is something I tell students now and my own children that, you know, 
you won't love everything that you do when you study and you won't I don't love everything about the law and I didn't love everything in my law degree Mm -hmm. there's always some parts that are a bit boring or that you're just not drawn to and particularly in law where you have to do some compulsory subjects Mm -hmm. and you just you get through those and and make the most of them and and they'll always be even doing tax for example I wasn't drawn to doing tax but I was quite surprised to find more in that course than I thought I would be interested in so so just take us back then um just before you started going to university like we've talked a little bit about um you know that that you enjoyed reading and writing and things but paint a little bit about yourself I guess as a person like did you enjoy the outdoors as well or were you more of a What's next book to read? Or <laughs> oh no, I think it was a bit of a mixture. Yeah. Um, my older sister Anna, who's twelve months older than me, mm-hmm. she loved the outdoors and didn't always said she didn't want an office job and she was never going to work indoors. And she ended up doing a diploma at Lincoln in, in horticulture. And in mm-hmm. fact, she became a gardener at the university in the oh. university gardens there. Uh, so I wasn't like that. I mean, I like the outdoors. Um, I like I swam, for example, and I really enjoyed swimming mm-hmm. in rivers and in the sea as well as in swimming pools. And um, but I liked reading and as well. Mm-hmm. So both, I guess. And and it's something that makes me a bit sad about our children these days with technology that I'm mm. always trying to get my kids outside more. Mm-hmm. They just, I go out for a walk with the dogs and it's beautiful and I come back and and they've missed the sound of the birds and the, yeah. the grass and, you know, the trees and the leaves and the wind, the breeze, yeah. all those physical, wonderful physical things. Yeah, my reflection on that, because as you know, I've got young children, yeah. is that um, technology becomes too easy of a solution yeah to the question to the answer of i'm bored and and if it's simply i'm bored okay we'll watch tv or here's a device or do something else and someone phrased this really wonderfully to me recently is if if a child says i'm bored the answer is that means you're about to do something really interesting you know like take it as an opportunity for them if you're bored okay what are you going to create what are you going to make what are you going to yeah. go outside to do? Yeah. Rather yeah. than, okay, we'll just, you know, play on this device. Yeah. 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 But, I, you know, I I think kids should be bored more. Mm. Um, and it's good to be bored. I, I used to lie under our kitchen table and just lie there and see if my toes would touch the table and, and just mm-hmm. lie there thinking mm-hmm. about things. Mum used to say, yeah, that was one of your favourite places. Or lying outside in the grass looking mm-hmm. at the clouds, you know. And I think, unfortunately, with devices these days, there's a tendency to think you have to be entertained all the time and mm-hmm. you can't just have a bit of time with, with your thoughts flitting around doing nothing very yeah. much. And yeah. I, That helps you develop your imagination, which I think is perhaps something that mm. is not exercised as much. And, and when I reflect on my own life, often I think my best ideas have come from those times of being bored or doing something different. I remember I, I put out this um, Social Enterprises in New Zealand yep. book. Yep. And I thought of doing that when I was skiing at Mount Hutt. You know, Fabulous. I was not yeah. in the office. I was not thinking yeah. of anything else. I was like yeah. doing something completely different. Yeah. And then, oh, maybe I should try that. And yeah. Yeah, and not so, trying to force it to happen, exactly, but, but yeah. letting those ideas letting float around. Bubble yeah. up from yeah, exactly. subconscious and things. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So um, do you remember being in first year in law school? Because obviously now your role is to have 
many students coming through. Yeah. Um, do you remember what it was like to be a first-year student? I do. It's quite a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did law with, and of course you do law in your non-law subjects, and that hasn't changed very mm-hmm. much. So I did law with political science and New Zealand history ah. and that's exactly the same degree that I did. I did ah, an LLB and I did a political science double major with history. Right, yeah, yeah. right. It's a, I enjoyed that combination. But Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I did too. And, uh, you know, I did, I did well in the other subjects. And I'm, I'm, the one kind of regret I have about doing law the way I did it was it wasn't that common to do a double degree back then. So I did okay. law. And, uh, you know, you narrow after you go through that that into that second year and you're just doing law if you're not doing another degree then you stop sort of reading other books and you're just mm-hmm. doing law basically which you know I liked but I, I think uh, my consumption of literature at that point mm-hmm. you know other things went went down quite a lot for quite a while really until I finished my degree mm-hmm. so I think the benefit of you know over nearly two thirds of students now do a double degree, right. and and that's great. I think that's a very good thing, mm. not only for career prospects, but but for their own sort of well roundedness mm. in terms of their learning and so on. On the other hand, I'd never knock anyone just doing a law degree, and I I like to say to students, you know, I had three careers out of my one mm-hmm. law degree, so I think I did pretty well in, in terms of return on the investment and so yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. So as you're studying, do you know, like, did it become obvious to you that you wanted to practice or that you wanted to research more? Or? Uh, look, I, that's really interesting. Um, again, you know, I, I was a bit passive about it in the sense that I just assumed I would go through and mm-hmm. get my degree mm-hmm. and and practice. Mm-hmm. That was it. That pathway was, yeah. you know, there was no crossroad moment. Or I think it's much these days. That decision is probably a lot more difficult. And there's there's so many other things that that are there in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. So no, that decision was easy for me, and maybe too easy. But luckily enough, it was fine. I. Uh, at all, I, I enjoyed everything I did after that point, after graduation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I changed my career. So I didn't, you know, I've met and known people who stayed in practice for too long and got mm. disillusioned and and were not happy, and they should have changed earlier. Whereas that's one thing about the current generation; they're quite choosy about where they want to go first off, and they don't muck around if they don't like it. In fact, right, yeah. You mean that they'll yeah. go on to another they'll, thing? They'll stop. Yeah. They'll, they'll yeah. say, I'm not liking this. I'm really, I need to do something else. I need to look elsewhere. Yeah. But, um, you know, my pathway was into practice, which I did for six years. Mm-hmm. And and then I, yeah, I was had that, two other careers after Was that, that. based in Christchurch? Yes, right? based yep. here in Christchurch with Western Warden Lassels, who was mm-hmm. one of the larger firms at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was... Um, even ending up there was not preordained or hugely planned in the sense that I worked in a shop while I was in a dairy while I was studying. Everyone had a little job, but of course, um, no fees. So, so your actual doing your study was free, but most people had a little job on the side as well. Whereas now, the big difference is that studying and doing your degree is something you 
one thing you do along with maybe having one or two jobs as mm. well. So so it's, I think more pressure on, on students much mm. more in that sense. But um, through that little job, I, I wasn't sure whether, in fact, thinking about this now, mm. I wasn't sure whether to go into practice at the end of my degree. And the opportunity came up to go overseas to Canada and become an au pair. All right. So I went down that path to the point of getting my... Um, passport Hmm. and so on but then and that's what I was going to do all my friends had finished their degree and they were applying for jobs and um but I was going to head off and look after Hmm. someone else's family which looking back on that now I don't know how good I would have been (laughs) at actually I'm okay at looking after my own family but I honestly am not sure that I would have been the world's best au pair Mm -hmm. but uh unfortunately that couple split up just before I was due to leave the country so there was no job to go to at that point and um but you'd had it lined up enough it was it was I was it was all going to happen so um then I was at the stage of thinking, well, what will I do? What, what will happen now? So I got my CV together and just sent it round to firms in Christchurch. And then Western Warden Nassau's contacted me because they had a, a job right. they hadn't been able to, to fill, mm-hmm. which wasn't really clerking. It was doing um, work for a finance company that was one of their clients. Um, but it was, a le- you know, it was a leg into the firm. It's an opportunity, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I moved on up to clerking from there and then so on in the traditional way. So... Mm. So, you know, my whole career has been partly luck and partly my own decisions. Mm. It's a bit it's interesting to reflect, though, isn't it, on on life, you know, and, and think about the couple in Canada yeah. who, you know, if, if something hadn't happened there, then you might have gone down that path. And then who knows where that oh. road would have led if you'd, well, I love Canada, I'm going to stay yeah. here. And then, yeah. you know, like exactly. it's... I still haven't been to Canada. I'd love to go there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get there one day. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so you end up practicing and yes. working for six years? It, yes. Ha- yes. I was a solicitor. Mm-hmm. So um, I was in general practice mm-hmm. and I did um, conveyancing, estates, a uh, bit of company work. Um, um, I appeared in court twice, just really looking after someone else's file. Right. Um, and people kept saying to me, oh, why aren't you doing litigation? Why? And I just never ended up in that department. That mm. wasn't how it worked out. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I enjoyed but I love our conversation because I know that you did have these career divergences. So talk us through the split in the road or what happened next? How did you okay. end up? Because you went... You went up to Wellington, right? I did, I did, did yeah. So I'd been um, with that firm for, for six years. And in fact, they went through a change during that time and split split in half and became two other firms. Right. So so that was quite traumatic for people. And I I had a choice of going with either side, but I ended up going with one part of them. And then at a uh, Law Society lunch mm. during a, a conference, I sat next to the person who turned out to be the speechwriter for the Minister of Justice, who at that time was Geoffrey Palmer, and got talking to her about her job. And I thought, oh, you know, this sounds quite interesting. And we had a good chat, and I went away and didn't give it another thought. But uh, then they contacted me Hmm. to let me know that, in fact, uh, she was leaving and there was a job available, and would I be interested Hmm. in having a chat to uh, the Minister because he was going to be in Christchurch that weekend or whatever. It was all very, 
very sudden. Right. And um, so just based on a conversation at a yeah, lunch with that the opportunity person who was leaving came yeah. up. Yes. Wow. Yes. I mean, she had mentioned that she would be leaving the job, but it never occurred to me that I would take that job or whatever. And so I said yes, and went and met uh, Jeffrey Palmer at. Um, one of the little restaurants in, in New Regent Street. Mm-hmm. We had a nice a nice meal and a nice chat, and he's a very dynamic personality, and I liked him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he tested me out and asked me various legal problems, how I would resolve them and so on. Uh, to cut a long story short, I had an interview and uh, got the job. Hmm. And so that involved, of course, moving from from Christchurch to Wellington. Right. So what year was this? Oh, gosh, I've got to think now. Um <laughs> Because I'm just trying to place it in the sequence yeah. of when he was uh, well, prime minister and, that, and things like that. Look, that was I can place it exactly for you because, of course, it affected the time I was there. But right. that was the end of near the end of the fourth Labour government. Okay, and he was minister of justice at that point. He became prime minister when David Longy stepped down. Right, and then um, was prime minister for about eleven months. And that was the time that I was, in fact, not speechwriting for him because I had written speeches for him when he was Minister of Justice. Then I moved into the law reform division of the Ministry of Justice, so I became a government lawyer Mm -hmm. and worked on law reform. Uh, It was all a good leg into the civil service and being right at the heart of things in Wellington, which was great. Mm -hmm. But then... um, uh, Jeffrey Palmer became Prime Minister at that point and seconded me back to his office in the Beehive mm. to be his legal advisor. Mm. And I followed in the footsteps of Alan France, who of course is now in the mm. Supreme Court. And, um, mm. uh, you know, Jeffrey Palmer, re- it, he changed the office in the sense mm. that it got split in two and there, there was a... a um, Prime Minister and Cabinet Department, and then there was um, the um, other side of the office that was not um, government, it was political. So mm. so he was the first person to do that, and I was part of the team while that was going on, which was fascinating. It was yeah. all incredible. So I... Because you're at the heart. So, yeah. so you've come from Christchurch, yeah. where you've yeah. been practicing CP, law. You're kind Christ. of reading the national newspaper, and, oh, <laughs> something's happening in the Wellington, and it's far, far removed. And well, I hardly sudden, read newspapers in those days, I right. have to tell you. It was really starting work in the Beehive that got me into yeah. regularly reading the media and being right. in touch with media which became a habit after that and sort of led to my interest in media law in particular. Yeah. So, so, so it's quite a contrast from oh, your, a huge for change. six years to huge what change. you became. So just talk us through the speechwriting aspect because okay. not many of us have written, no. you know, our speechwriters. So I'm yeah. just curious about how does that work? How do you express yeah. someone else's up yeah. on the podium talking? Like, how do you put yourself in, you know, presumably there's some core messages we want to get across, and then yeah, you here yeah. you go well, run with it, or how does it how does it yeah. work? Okay, so um, I I you learn from the previous speechwriter and the previous speeches that are available, so I you see. you get a good look at those to see the style and but yes, the idea is that you are trying to write in the way that that person will speak yeah. as well as get the information in there, whatever it might be. But I would have regular meetings with um, Jeffrey and and his press secretary and we'd go over his 
his appointments where mm-hmm. he was going to go and what he was and what he the particular appointments that he needed speeches for and they would range from uh, I was the justice writer so I wasn't a political speech writer at all right. I I was hired as a person with a law degree because I would have the necessary knowledge to talk about the legal things he might be talking about so mm-hmm. so you know um it, it ranged from one speech that I wrote that turned out to be too long. It was one where he'd been invited by um, Lawsock, the, mm. the Christchurch Canterbury Lawsock, to come down here and speak at um, their leavers dinner, or one of those that was actually in the town hall, right. and um, about careers, about legal careers. So I had to, you know, do good. As I say, it did turn out to be a speech that was too long, and it was very interesting sitting there, right. listening to him editing it as he went along. Right. <laughs> and uh, um, so I, I, I erred in favour of putting too much information in there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's probably still a fault that I've got. But, you know, you learn techniques like... I don't know, five lines on the page is one minute, one minute's worth of speech. So you learn to work out how much you're writing and if you're doing the right thing. I actually think I was not as good as the previous speechwriter at capturing mm. um, uh, Jeffrey's the, the personality, kind of, yeah, the, yeah, the, the way yeah, of speaking. Yeah. And, and I remember yeah. him saying to me very directly at a meeting, well, you know, Ursula, you're good and you work fast, but you've got to, got to sort of get to know me a bit more. And, right. uh, he was right about that, I think. So um, so if you'd written a speech and you slide it across the table and say, look, Jeffrey, here's the key points, or how would that, was that part of it? Like, um, this is this is a sentence that's that hopefully they'll take away as the quote, yeah. Or, yeah. or or do you, you just uh, No, it didn't it really work like that. He would tell me yeah. the main things he wanted covered, okay. so he would have done that for me, mm-hmm. and I would go away and do that if I needed to do some research on it or whatever, and I would sort of put flesh on the bones around it. But, yeah. but he was, you know, talented enough to change things as much as he wanted or didn't yeah. want as he went along. Um, yeah. To take out of it what what he wanted out of it or, yeah. or not, as yeah. the case may be. Yeah, I've heard enough speeches where I I can tell sometimes if the minister is going yeah. off of the oh. what's written there, and but on, uh, sometimes yeah, but sometimes <laughs> that going off piece. Do you think actually I'm hearing the authentic, real yeah. voice of the person yeah. and yeah. what had been written for yeah. them was clearly. Yeah. They, you know, this is the content, but yeah. it sounds so much better when they're off yeah. off the cuff and just yeah. talking and, yeah. and you think, actually, yeah. that, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and there is, you know, I mean, I, I got hold of several books about the world's greatest speeches and those mm. sorts of, you know, the most beautiful speeches that have been written and so on. And uh, I think you're right. I think probably the people who do the best are those who write their own. But, of course, for, for ministers and so on, um, mm. they don't have time to do it. They do need to have the facts. I guess at the back of it also, yeah. but it is a it's a specialist sort of talent, and you know it was fine. I did it okay, but I don't ever think I was a fantastic speechwriter. I remember years after that being in London and going to an agency looking for legal work, mm-hmm. and the person who was interviewing me obviously thought I was the very famous speechwriter who became David Longy's wife, and because they, I told them I was a speechwriter and I was from New Zealand, and I, I think they expected me to be her and were quite disappointed when I turned up and it wasn't her at all. So some speechwriters are, are renowned and well-known and, and very, very good. And I you know, yeah. I did it as a civil servant and I was fine, but yeah. I, I don't think it was particularly my... Yeah. And, and you don't... 
you know, after a year, I'd had enough, actually. Yeah. It, it, and I did say to people, it's a job. It's a bit like judges clerking. It's got a limited, mm. it's got a limited stamp on it. After a year or two years, you're writing the same speeches again. You don't right. really want to be... You'd probably be a bit bored yeah. if you if you And were, I can imagine at the start it would be quite exciting to yeah. be at a, an event and think yep. he's reading the speech. Yep. I wrote that. Man. Yeah. Well, and, I no, I guess I wasn't I never felt completely confident about right. this might be a, a female thing, I don't know, but I never yeah, I never thought I'd written the best speech sure. in the world, although I knew I'd written some that were better than others. Yeah. But um but I knew he'd always be okay. Yeah. What was interesting was travelling with, with him in the car and hearing his thoughts about other things and okay. meeting, going with him too. I can remember being the only woman in the room at a um, where he went to give a speech at a working men's club in oh. Nelson. You know, that sort of thing was quite fast. For me, I'd, I'd had a reasonably sheltered upbringing in yeah. Christchurch and it was just great to get out and do all these different yeah. different things yeah oh that's great yeah i love because speeches can come to symbolize something like i'm thinking of john f kennedy yeah some of his speeches mm. you know it very inspiring yeah. and i'm thinking abraham lincoln you know like it, one of the most famous speeches ever it's like two paragraphs it's yes very yeah four score and yeah. whatever years yeah. ago you know and and, but then I'm also thinking like Theodore Roosevelt, he, he had one, it's not the critic who counts, but the person in the arena, you know, like, right. but that, if you read the, I've read the actual speech and yes. it's like 20 pages long wow. and that's but one that's paragraph, that people but remember. that's the bit that they yeah. remember. Yeah. yeah. But the actual speech they... is not that as interesting yeah. as that paragraph. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, Kevin Rudd's speech of apology to the lost generation you mm. know it, the, all those good speeches they're beautiful mm. they're just beautiful and they have alliteration and you know when they're spoken they're just just special because the reason people remember them yeah. is because of that um so there's an art to it and yeah. there's, there's yeah. beauty to it and there's a, and and i guess it's a little bit you know not to put talk about this too much but it's a little bit like poetry yeah you know and so. like john f kennedy that um, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your yeah. country. You know, yeah. it's like so simple, but yeah. very memorable. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, the next stage then was giving him advice, you said? You came back in? Yeah. I, well, you know, I worked in, as I say, the law reform division, which is a wonderful division. It was a wonderful division of justice with a number of lawyers working there mm -hmm. across the whole um, spectrum of government, mm -hmm. uh, keeping an eye on reform and what needed reform mm -hmm. in the law and that doesn't exist anymore so right. um uh, which is a bit sad i think although there still are individual lawyers and in, in various places in government that do that but um and then after that as i say i got seconded back mm -hmm. to to do this sort of newish role that um justice Ellen france had done up to that point right which was a, a being an advisor to a legal advisor so that that had a number of aspects to it that was still really being worked out so so whatever he wanted legal advice on um around what was happening with legislation and so on uh, what was happening in cabinet regulations I, I got to look at regulations that mm. were going through cabinet to see if there were any problems with any of those got to know the people in the parliamentary council office got to know the people in his political advisory team so it was just a very general sort mm. of overview of anything legal that that came up that um, he would need to know yeah yeah that's yeah. great and for for well 
for the vast majority of us, we will never have that opportunity to yeah. work in that sort of yeah. inner circles of the beehive. And yeah. things. What, what, I guess, from an outsider looking in, yeah, we just don't have visibility. What was it like for you being involved in there? What do you think people would be interested to know? Yeah. Um, to the extent you can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I can talk about it. It's a long time ago now. But, um, well, like any job, there was routine about it. I was talking about reading the newspapers and so, you know, every day clippings would be delivered to you and I had the ones that had anything legal in them that, you know, I might have to brief him about. I see. There was a lot of routine around... Um, uh, yeah, given, giving him advice relating to meetings that he was off to or committees that he was involved in, mm-hmm. um, pieces of legislation that were going through the house that were were relevant to him, anything else, any sort of firefighting that needed to go on. You know, at, at that stage, the Office of Treaty Settlements was quite new, and so we were getting judgments out of the Court of Appeal that related to treaty issues, and they were, they were big, you know, they would come through, and my job would be to look at those to give him advice about that. Mm. Um, so it's a very varied role. Huge, that, like, huge variety. Because law encompasses many yeah, topics, really good. Yeah. People would come to me in the Beehive for official information, advice they were getting official information requests and sometimes wanted advice about that um yeah it was just a great a great variety mm. of yeah. which was hugely enjoyable challenging and enjoyable yeah at the same time and and so what what happened next like did, did yeah. you decide this is enough i'm ready to well, i on? already knew at that stage that yeah. i wanted to um go overseas and do postgrad so I, for some time I'd been thinking about doing a master's and uh, that was particularly uh, with a, an academic career in mind. So, so you know, I'd been in practice, I'd been a lawyer in practice, now I was a, a, a civil servant, a, a, a government uh, lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the next thing that I was quite interested in was being an academic um, partly because my partner and I at that point were thinking about starting a family and I, it seemed to me that an, uh, the life of an academic would be able to be uh, work around having children reasonably well. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, But we'd planned this trip overseas because my partner's uh, English mm-hmm. and so uh, you know he had a British passport and it would be fairly easy to go back. And I, I was, you know... 30 by this time and I'd never been out of New Zealand right so I hadn't had the big OE or anything like that so we both knew that was what we wanted to do so um and I had actually applied for um, a job as an academic at Canterbury earlier Hmm. while I was in practice but but I'd been advised that you need to have a post-grad degree I see um now back then you could do it with a a master's degree now you need to have a PhD or at least be finishing a PhD mm-hmm. so it was a bit easier back then but I didn't have a master's so right. I needed to look around so you and, knew there was yeah, a stepping stone exactly to, yeah. exactly so I was remarkably lucky in that um uh, Jeffrey agreed to be a, a referee for me mm-hmm. and I looked at going to Cambridge although he recommended going to the US because of course he had a connection with Iowa he used to go back and teach at Iowa mm. for years um uh and and you know had these strong connections and, and was very interested in American law uh, but in any event he gave me a, a reference which is mm. just what I needed and which I'm uh, always grateful for and um 
I ended up getting in at Cambridge. There was a lot less money around in those days, a lot fewer scholarships. Mm-hmm. Uh, I applied for the various things that were available, but in the end I funded myself. And, you know, luckily I'd been working for a while, so I had some some funding. Um, they did offer to give me a bond through the Justice Department, but I, because it was a bond and I might have had to have gone back right. there, yeah. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be sort of tied into that. And in the end, my mum lent me ah. the remainder of the money I needed to have. So with my little pot of gold, yeah. um, eventually I got accepted wow. at Cambridge. And you knew and, how important that was to your mother as well. Well, you know, she, she had scrimped and saved yeah. for years and she gave me an interest-free loan. Yeah. And, um, you know... Because I remember I, you were talking about your childhood... Yeah. Yeah. And how your father would bring home the money. The and money she, she would, would she look after it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, so I resigned in the end, and um, I always tell the story that I we were on the ferry, the Inter Island ferry, coming back down here just just to say goodbye to everyone and pack up and go overseas. Mm-hmm. And while we were on the ferry. Um, the announcement came over the theory that um, Jeffrey had resigned. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, that was just before the election. Uh, and he was replaced by Mike Moore for eight weeks just before the election. So right. a bit like Jacinda with this recent, you know, most recent election that we've had, um, they replaced their, their leader in the hope of, of winning the election at that very late stage. And, unfortunately, that was not to be mm-hmm. Labour Labour lost that election, mm-hmm. and I. So I like to say that you know I resigned, and Jeffrey found he couldn't go on without me, so he resigned <laughs> a week later, <laughs> which of course is absolute rubbish. But um, and you know mm. he's gone on to greater and greater heights, and uh, his career has been wonderful. But uh, so we headed off for for Cambridge and mm. and life as a postgrad student, and my partner Rob. Um, he had a bit of a tough time, actually, because right. he, he was looking for work. Ah. And he'd worked in radio here. And um, and he was from England? From so, the UK. So he had so no, no problems of, working there, but yeah. it was getting ah. the job. And, you know, for the first three months, he was quite, it was quite stressful for him, mm. whereas I was meeting new people and having a lovely time getting into this right. LLM program. And at Cambridge. We were in yeah. Cambridge, which <laughs> is very pretty and lovely and interesting. And oh, we had a nice little flat in a Victorian house and... Um, but anyway, after three months, he, he ended up working for the um, office of uh, their equivalent of basically being a government um, journalist. Hmm. And that was where he stayed for the rest of the time that hmm. that we were in the UK. So hmm. so nine months worth of study there. It's pretty crushed in the it's old... It's pretty intense, it's, yeah. It, I mean, it is a year, effectively. But by the time you're finishing, it's nine months and you do your exams and, hmm. and it's done. And um, and at that time, because media law is something that you've gotten into, yeah. was that something that was was taking your interest at that time as well? No, right. no. But the beginnings of it were there because okay. I, I, I did for my LLM. You could do four courses, and one of them you could do a thesis instead of just sitting an exam. Okay. And so I did censorship on that. And at the time, New Zealand was looking at its censorship laws and um, there had been a commission, you know, a a committee investigating and there was a big report and all that. So it it was a good topic that I could uh, get my teeth into and Mm -hmm. it was timely. 
And of course, that's where freedom of expression began to feature very strongly in my mm. interests. And uh, I wrote a, a little thesis on it. Hmm. Uh, and some of my work from there has... Right. has so there's been, some seeds that you can definitely, trace back Definitely, definitely. And the interest in interest, yeah, freedom right. of expression. And then when I came back and got my job at the university, I, one of the areas I was teaching in was torts, which covered defamation and privacy. And both of those, of course, are mm-hmm. very much... Um, areas where freedom of expression is relevant and important and that leads you into mm-hmm. um, the, the very diverse number of subjects that are part of the broad church that is media law. Yeah, that's great. So is that what you did? Did you come back to Canterbury at that time? Yes, or? we yeah. did. I mean, we were in the UK for, after my LLM, we moved to London mm-hmm. and I got a job with Law Commission there Okay, uh, and worked in the... Um, the team, well, we spent a, a long time looking at uh, negligence. Actually, I was in the um, private law team, and there was a big project they were doing at the time on personal injury. And of course, you know, we don't have a lot of personal injury case law in New Zealand because we've got ACC, mm-hmm. but in the UK, you know, if you're hit by a car or whatever, the insurance companies sue each other and mm-hmm. away they go. And it might take you five to ten years to actually get some money at the end. Of, I was shocked by that. But mm-hmm. uh, So one thing the Law Commission was looking at was whether any changes needed to be made to those laws and were personal injury victims, you know, receiving the right amount of damages and mm-hmm. were they, as had been rumoured for years, wasting all their money on holidays overseas and things like that. <laughs> and we did a big empirical research project uh, as the background to that. That was my introduction to empirical mm-hmm. legal research and um, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I had to work with uh, insurance companies at that time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we ended up making some recommend, you know, issuing a report. We looked at punitive damages, issued reports on those. So, so each investigation that you're involved in, you might issue a number of reports, not just not just one. Right. So, again, I was involved in law reform and and proposals for law reform, Mm -hmm. Uh, but as a civil servant working in the um, Lord Chancellor's department who had the oversight of the Law Commission Mm. over there, which I enjoyed hugely. Yeah. Um, And in your time in the UK, did that start to crystallise your own identity as coming from New Zealand? Like, did you feel like maybe we'll just stay here in London, or did you always feel like one day I'll go home? Because you've got, like me, my wife's from the UK. Yeah. So we've had this tension where her father lives mm. just north of London. So we're very, very far away from her father. Right. I, I, I have an accent, but I grew up in Christchurch. So right. Christchurch, I always feel, is my Turanga yeah. Wai Wai. This right. is where I'm from. Right, right. So we've always had this ten- yeah. small tension. We've resolved it. It's yeah. fine. But yeah. it's always been a tension yeah. like, where yeah. where do we end up? Where do we go? No, that's not really been a difficulty for us in the sense that um, Rob and his family came out to New Zealand when he was 10. Right. So he sees himself as a Kiwi. Okay. And... Um, uh, when we headed overseas, we thought we'd go for one to two years, mm-hmm. which, of course, as soon as we got there, we realised was nothing. It just went like that. Yeah. And we came back after two years for a break, for a holiday, just to see everyone. And so and we knew we'd go back. Mm-hmm. And so we just thought we'll stay as long as we feel like it's still good and we're mm-hmm. enjoying it. And mm-hmm. um, actually, after four and a half years, 
the house we were staying in had to be returned to the people who who owned it and that kind of got us thinking about whether we were mm. you know when were we going to come back and so on and at that stage we were thinking well maybe it's time to come back and start a family okay. as well so all of those things I, I think we always that. knew we'd come back yeah. it just you know wasn't set in stone when that would happen mm. yeah yeah well it's similar for us we we got married in Wellington then left for a two-year OE that became 11 years yeah. right and it just right. you know it did yeah. go by yeah snap your fingers and yeah it does doesn't it yeah yeah and i mean you you know what we said when we left london was well if we want to come back we can come back Mm. you know we can uh, travel you you know if we want to we will yeah Yeah. but by this time your cv is looking a lot different to when you just (laughs) graduated and started working so absolutely true so you you wanted to apply for that academic job i did i still had that in mind i still thought that's what i'd do and i'd stayed in touch with canterbury to Mm -hmm. see what was happening because we wanted to come back to christchurch and a job came up and I applied for it. And as we were traveling back, we sort of took, I don't know, 10 weeks or something to come back because we traveled mm. back through India and had a bit of a look around. Mm-hmm. Um, that the job was being, you know, my CV was being considered and all of that. And I remember ringing, I hadn't heard anything and hadn't heard anything. And I remember ringing the university while we were in Delhi. And it was really hard to get a phone call and to get through and to work out who I was talking to and all of that. And I got, I must have got someone in registry who seemed to know nothing about my application and um, didn't know what the progress was or anything like that. And and um, so when I put the phone down, I just thought, oh, that's it. Nothing's mm. going to happen. And anyway, we got back and uh, after we'd settled in a bit and so on, I went... I made contact with David Rowe at the university and, mm. and said, look, you know, I just, I know I haven't heard anything and it probably means nothing's happening, but but um, is there anything to tell me? And I wasn't expecting anything to happen. He said, oh, Ursula, we've been waiting for you to contact us. Would you like to come in for a <laughs> cup of tea? <laughs> and so in I went and pretty much without an interview and on a handshake, I got offered a job. Huh. And I, looking back on it years later and, you know, talking with people and so on, I think they'd offered to somebody in Canada who, and as is often the case with these high flyers from other countries, they're looking around using offers of jobs elsewhere as, you know, to, right. to get leverage, a good job. And, uh, and, yeah, yeah, as leverage. Yeah. Yeah. And so they'd, they'd lost another candidate. And I, I used to have David on after that and say, oh, I was just second choice. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't matter. I got the job I wanted. You and take the opportunity yeah. when it's there, right? Yeah. And just like you're sitting next to someone who's the speechwriter yeah. for Jeffrey Palmer. Exactly. And then it leads to... Exactly. Yeah, which, and, yeah, because I'm just thinking through now. Now I understand what you mean, the the... The chance, the coincidence as well. Because yep. if you hadn't sat next to that person at the lunch, yeah. who then got you the yeah. the the dinner with yeah. Jeffrey, who then started working for, who then wrote the letter yep. that got you into Cambridge, yep. Yep. who then you know it's yep. it's like a sequence, isn't absolutely. it? Hmm, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So you come back and then the academic career opened up and that's what you've been doing since, That's what right? I've been doing ever since I yeah, started as yeah. a lecturer. And so how long is that? Uh, about 23 that? years now. Yep. So, And that's the longest I've been in any of my careers. Mm-hmm. Um, I've loved all of my jobs mm. more 
you know, each one more as, I, as I've done them. So I've been very lucky. Oh, that's and, good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I've been very lucky in my, lucky and to have, yeah, to be in that position. Yeah. Um, you know, been, they've been challenging at times and there's been down points and higher points as any job would have. But yeah. overall, I, I feel very lucky. Yeah. yeah. So that was in the mid-1990s or so? Uh, so that back? was... 96 or so? Oh, yeah, 95. 23 years ago. 95, 95, right. 95. Yeah. And I started... Either oh look ninety five. Well, this or is the fun. This is the fun thing for me because <laughs> I went. I like I said. I I grew up in Christchurch. I went to Canterbury <laughs> University, and my first year was nineteen ninety five. Oh, there you go. So um, it must have been. We probably walked beside. You know, I yeah. probably walked by each other, yeah. and I'm sure I was that in be right. some of your classes and things because right. I ended up. It took me six years because I took a year out to go to Japan. Right. And I taught English over there for a year. Right. After my third year. Yeah. But, so I was there till 2001, basically. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. see, you've had a very interesting and very career. Yeah. Well, you? I feel like law for me as yeah. well. I always felt like it was a key yeah. that would unlock doors that right. would remain shut otherwise. Right. Even when I was a law student, I remember someone explained that picture to me. Yeah. And it made sense because whether you choose to become a lawyer or you go down business mm. or whatever it is, having the law degree in some ways does allow you to open these doors. And mm. in, in my career, I've... Like you, I've traveled a lot, and it's been the law that's meant I yeah. was able to go to Tokyo, yeah. or London, right. Sydney, yeah. and work in those big yeah. law firms, and then eventually come back. Yeah. So, well, the yeah. skills are extremely transferable, and yeah. I always, when I talk about a law degree, I say, look, it's basically a very high-quality communication degree. It's mm. about communication in mm. every way, oral, written. You know, you've got to have the legal knowledge at the back of it, and you've got to have analytical skills as well. But... You, you know, as I say, I've had three really good careers out mm. of my law degree, and uh, law is fascinating. Mm. And it also gives you the power to do a lot of good, mm. a lot of good. You're basically helping people mm. uh, or trying to help people, uh, and that's a great a great thing to be able to do, I think. Mm. Uh, one of my strongest memories is of uh, helping a couple who, well, their relationship was breaking up. Actually, this was when I was in practice here in Christchurch, and quite yeah. young, and quite, you know, not not very experienced. Mm. And they, their husband brought the wife to my office. He was English. Their marriage was breaking up. They, um, she was very very upset, mm. and it was hard to even keep her in the office. She kept wanting to leave. She was so upset, and I had to basically sort them out to get a separation agreement organised, right. and and try and calm her. And you know, I had, she ran out of the office at one point, and I had to sit down on the stairs mm. and and calm her mm-hmm. basically. And we did what we needed to do. I referred her out for independent advice and so on, and it was done. And they both left the country and I thought oh I I may not get paid for this mm. you know there's no guarantee the bill will be paid and sure enough he paid the bill mm. he absolutely paid the bill everything was done right yeah. so so you know those were two people mm. who were in difficulty and um I was able to do what they wanted and it was upsetting mm. you know and lawyers I think have to learn to sympathize but also stay professional at mm. the same time it's mm. one of those so there's lots of skills involved in being yeah. and the reality is that a lawyer is often involved at critical junctures of a person's yeah. life yeah like yeah um, and some of them know, are good and I'm, some of them I'm, aren't I'm, I'm buying a house yeah yeah this is a wonderful a happy thing occasion you know, so, yeah so that's good yeah. but 
maybe I need a will. Yeah. Maybe I need an enduring power of attorney. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I need, oh, I'm starting a business. Yeah. So those are kind yeah. of the positive yeah. side of things. Yeah. But then you're also there, like you say, with yeah. the breakups Times or the, the liquidations and, yeah. of companies or the yeah. things haven't gone well. You're allowing well. people to move on and, and yeah. that things are done fairly. Those sorts of things are yeah. very important, yeah. I think. I mean, just before our interview, I emailed out a charitable trust deed right. to a client. So I can't help the people in the North Island that this particular trust is proposing to help. Right. But I can help the person right. who then can help to a thousand help people. Indirectly, and yeah. I've always felt like that's such an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. It's yeah. like a, a catalyst, you know, yeah. to, to do that. Yeah. 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 So tell me a little bit about the law school today. And yeah. sort of, um, yeah, I, I'd just love to hear what's the philosophy or what are you hoping that the students are yeah. are leaving with. <laughs> yeah, okay. So there's been a lot of change, especially since the quakes, and there's been a lot to cope with, as mm. Christchurch has had to cope with. But we've had a steady stream of our wonderful, the children of mm. the families in this region. We are a regional university that basically serves serves this region very well. And um, so I guess we want to graduate students, obviously to have the knowledge that they need about the law and the skills to apply it, um, the ability to analyse, the ability to relate to people, those things we've Mm. been talking about. We want them to be resilient. That word comes up so often now. Mm. Um, We want them to, um, yeah, I I like to think they're going to use their law degree for good. Mm. It sounds soppy and uh, idealistic but I you know that's what I try to instill in them as we go through each year in the degree we're just busy planning a capstone course which is going to be new in next 2021 not next year but the year after right and that's a job uh, that's a course that's intended it's going to be about it's going to be called law and transition into work Mm. and so it's about giving them more skills basically to make the jump from university into actual work whatever Mm. it might be whether it's in practice or or elsewhere where you Mm. can use your legal skills Mm. so that's going to be a mixture of helping them consolidate the uh, the knowledge that we've given them mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the sort of basic skills around law. But um, we've got a, a mixture, sort of smorgasbord as well, of other things that'll get them to focus on wellness and resilience and mm. um, culture mm-hmm. in a workplace, bicultural skills, technology and the law, one of mm-hmm. your favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're going to use guest Guest, mm. a number of guest speakers for our last session, for example, we have a panel just with mm-hmm. uh, not only practitioners but people working with the law about being in work and you know telling their stories and things yeah. that they mean. You know, it's the sort of thing we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so a real mixture mm. uh, that hopefully the the there's much more pressure now generally on universities, not just law schools, to uh, teach. Skills mm. as much as more skills, mm. um, so well, that's think, our response. Yeah, I our response. I think I think that's good because when I remember back to law school, and I'm just thinking in particular like of crimes. Yep. And I remember coming up with a flowchart of cases. So you know, like if this happened, then this, 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 yep. and, and then literally memorizing dozens and dozens and dozens yep. of case names yep. and what they what they stood for and all yep. that type of thing yep. and it, you know it obviously it does teach you skills of 
memory and yep. logic and being able to explain. Yeah. But in actual practice, yep. I don't remember no, those case names. Not. You know. So it's yeah. that it's having, but the the flip side of that is that the the skills that have been really that I've learned. Yeah. As a lawyer practicing, you'll appreciate is the. It's the empathy. Yeah. How do yeah. you ask people questions? Yeah. How do you come alongside yeah. them? How do you ask the hard questions to actually yeah. find out what they really are yeah. asking? Yeah. You know, because sometimes yeah. sometimes clients will tell you one thing, but yeah. actually they mean, mean another. Else. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. and then also the interpersonal dynamics of working in teams. Yep. Because yep. I think in the future law firms are gonna need to be more team orientated mm. rather than the lone wolf yep. doing the work, you know, skills of delegation, yeah. you know, yeah. this, yeah. none of this will surprise you, but no. that's the practical day to day reality yeah. for a grad yeah. coming in with, let's say a team of yeah. five or six yeah. or seven yeah. or whatever. And it's like, yeah. this is quite different yeah. to writing an assignment that's 2000 words. It's the old and turning out an opinion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've realized we've got to do more than mm-hmm. that, more than the essay and the opinion. But uh, I've just been discussing this morning with our team on the capstone Mm. very much what you've been talking about which Mm. is the first half of that course will be focused on group work Mm -hmm. and we were talking about how you know what happens then when the group goes wrong Mm. if there's one person who's not pulling their weight or whatever you know how will how will that affect the others and how will that affect how they're assessed and how can we make sure that the and so we were talking about well part of it will be teaching them how to cope with that as well I've always done a bit of this in my media law course because we do a group um, a group simulation exercise in my media law course and we the other thing is oral presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got more emphasis on those sorts of things now. And often students will say when we get them to reflect on those, oh, oh I've never had one of those in my law degree or in, in mm. any of my... Well, we kind of assume that they do, but but no, they don't. And Maybe they've managed they to get through yeah. high school without it as well, yeah. which seems remarkable to me, but it yeah. is does appear uh, to be the case. And, but it's essential, you know, like actually practice, practicing as a lawyer being able to express yourself verbally, you yep. know, even you know, we talk about presenting, assuming there's a hundred people, but even for two people in yep. a room, that's still presentation yeah. skills. Yeah. It's Absolutely. still being able to connect, and yeah. so yeah. I think those are, yeah, those are important. Yeah. So it sounds as though so we're on the right you're, track. You're do on you the think? right track. I endorse that. <laughs> Great. Yep, definitely. So what other innovative things have you got planned for the law school? Well, we're right in the middle of quite a big innovation, actually, which is that um, the, the law school offers not only a law degree now, but also a criminal justice degree. Hmm. And that was the first degree of its kind offered in New Zealand. We've been running it, you know, for... Um, We've had our first lot of graduates over the last few years and so on. So um, that, that's that been a really interesting challenge for us, but also it's made uh, the law school a more interesting place, I think. Mm-hmm. And we're finding we've got students now who uh, do double degrees, law and criminal justice. Mm-hmm. So these are students who are interested in working in the justice system specifically. Uh, and uh, again, it's one of those degrees where you can do a lot of good and it's a good combination with law so we're getting an interesting um, change to Mm. our student body Um, 
and I'm learning a lot about the criminal law, actually, which yeah. is, is really fascinating, and also about psychology and um, youth offending and how to deal with female prisoners and all sorts of things that are a special part of, of the law. So yeah. our government's very interested in that. The police are very interested in it. So it's another pathway for our students, career-wise mm-hmm. and so on, and it's been very I, interesting. I actually know someone who's done that degree. Okay. Yeah, and he's really interested in getting into the police. Right. So that's his area, but he's right. done an undergrad degree, and I think it, it it was at least partly, or yeah, it involved that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. he's enjoyed it. So, so yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's been quite an interesting diversification yeah. for the law school, which will continue to to challenge us, I think, and take us into the future. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I just ask just a little bit in terms of the research that you've done into media law yep. over the years? Oh. I just would love to understand sort of what where does New Zealand sit maybe internationally and and what do you think could be changed or, you know, what might the future hold? Um well, we're quite similar to the UK, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, it's very much a comparative topic in that I'm always looking to the UK, Australia, mm-hmm. Canada, mm-hmm. not so much America because, of course, the, with their constitutional setup, their um, freedom of expression is, is much more powerful in terms of trumping other things that um, yeah. other areas of the law. So when we talk about freedom of expression, yeah. w- let's just dive into that one because that's mm. fascinating, isn't it? Particularly given events in Christchurch in March this yes. year. And, yes. you know, there is a spectrum of you're allowed to say what you want, you're allowed to say what you want, you're allowed to say what you want. But then at some point, there has to be a, a, a cutting off and saying, actually, no, that's not acceptable to the society at large. And I guess it's about that fine point. Well, there's two things going on there, and I have been very concerned since 15th March about the state of freedom of expression and the the threat to freedom of expression in New Mm. Zealand at the moment. Talking about freedom of expression has become unpopular, and it's totally understandable why, um, due to the fear and the fallout from the dreadful Mm. events of 15th March. Mm. And when people become afraid, they become reactionary and extreme. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've taken part in a number of workshops and events and so on Mm -hmm. uh, since 15th March, looking at what's going to happen about hate speech and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, When I stand up and talk about freedom of expression, um, the groups that are and representatives who are there basically representing victims or or, um, Mm. diverse groups who suffer from, from racist comment and so on every day and so on, they're not so interested in freedom of expression. They're interested in safety and um, stopping offensive comment. And it's hard to argue when they say, look, you know, people talk about everyday racism and, okay, it's not extreme or anything like that, but it adds up over time is what Mm. their argument is. And that leads to, you know, you could argue that leads to a big event Mm -hmm. um, like 15th of March. And so if we stop those little incidences of racism, hate speech, or, you know, it's not quite hate speech, it's offensive speech. But uh, and my answer to that is... If we're worried about life and limb, then we need to look to the laws that are relevant for that, and we need to look to the services like the police and the secret services, and mm-hmm. you know we need to look at those to see what needs to be done there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of speech, I'm, I'm giving a paper in a week or so, actually, in Australia on hate speech. Mm. And I've looked at all the laws that we've got because that's what's being looked at, by, of course, by Andrew Little. And he's got his team in justice reviewing mm-hmm. all of the laws that are relevant to hate speech and our hate speech provisions in particular. Um, and I, it, it concerns me that we have hate speech provisions in the the racial disharmony provisions in the Human Rights Act. Mm. They've never worked very well. They're poorly drafted. They're, uh, and as our jurisprudence around freedom of expression has developed, it's been very hard to actually, for any group, to be able to successfully make complaints based on, on those provisions. Mm. And I thought that was the right way to go, and I still think that's the right way to go. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, the events of 15th of March have led to calls to either revive those provisions or make them better or make them stronger. Mm. And I still hold to the view that's been expressed by the High Court in the um, the Wall case. Louisa Wall mm. complained about the cartoons that had been published in a couple of newspapers about the Food and Schools Programme, and she argued these cartoons were... Um, racist and and breached these racial disharmony Mm. provisions and that was the first time the high court uh, last year looked at these provisions and interpreted them and they basically said and they used canadian jurisprudence for this Mm. you know these laws are not here to prevent offensive speech they're here to prevent very extreme speech that comes from hatred that that very Mm. and they interpreted those words very strongly so so they set a very high threshold to be able to criminalize speech Mm. um it has to be bad it has to be real hatred that has an effect an actual effect of some kind Uh, you know I won't go into the wording of the section and so on it's quite detailed but uh, and you know people were very disappointed in that decision and how can how can our newspapers get away with publishing racist but of course it doesn't prevent other speech being used to explain why that sort of thing is unacceptable and and you know one of the classic free speech responses is you meet offensive speech with more speech so mm-hmm. you use your free speech to to explain why racist speech is unacceptable and, and it doesn't mean shouting someone down at a meeting or hurling abuse at them as seems to happen in social media unfortunately mm-hmm. it means you know getting up and actually meeting those mm-hmm. arguments and challenging them and explaining what's wrong with that so so i think speech and social responses uh what should be used in relation to offensive speech. Mm. Uh, But the law should not get involved in that. And it's that line. It's Mm. that line between offensive speech, where does it cross over into being actual hate speech, where the Mm. law should either criminalise it or a person should be able to complain to the Human Rights Commission or whatever. It's that which is being negotiated and re-looked at at the moment. And it does concern me that... um, yeah, it's become a bit unfashionable to talk about freedom of expression and a bit harder yeah. to talk about it because that's the theory. There's a lot of theory around it, but yeah. to people who've been through 15th March or whatever, that's the reality mm. of what happened and the two, you know, don't mm. don't go together. Yeah, it, oh, it's, a, it's a difficult topic, it's isn't it? It's really yeah. complex. And, and the other thing to add in is that social values and things change over time. You know, like if we went back 40 or 50 years in the states and black and white and you know segregation and like it was it was 
kind of okay at that time, but yep. using our standards of today, yeah. it would not be okay. You yeah. know, like, and if you go mm. back further, I'm sure there's a lot more other, other Absolutely. things. And, Absolutely. And you and I are of a generation and maybe our great grandchildren, when they listen to this podcast we'll laugh at in a hundred years, yeah, <laughs> they'll be like, what were they talking I was about? Reading today. But I do think there is value in diversity and, and, and being able Absolutely. to express your views um, is is Part fundamentally important and there is a danger of just saying well no we don't want to offend anybody yeah. Yeah. we just have to all yeah. be the same yeah. and we'll all be okay yeah. like there's a yeah. there, that's the that's it's too far that way, way as well so i absolutely agree with you yeah. yeah yeah i've just was reading an article about netflix and and other sort of streaming services okay and whether they should be regulated and how they sort of look after censorship issues themselves uh, and they're doing that more and more now, whereas they didn't worry at the start. But apparently, I think Netflix and others are now, they for for old old programming, they're starting to put up warnings about how you know the content of this program right. is not, yeah, and, yeah, is yeah. not is not as you say yeah. part of acceptable according to our culture yeah. today. And it, it made me think, well, isn't that obvious? Can't we just think that to ourselves? Do we need a warning yeah. about it? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. We've, we've come to think we have to warn about everything now, yeah. I think. Yeah, um, yeah it's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking, just riffing off of that, because I think um, Denzel Washington, the actor, yeah. his first movie was like 1978 or 1979. And if you look at it, I've only seen the trailer for it, right. but it, it was it, it, it's just very not appropriate yeah <laughs> just yeah. the the race issues right. and the things that that are going on right. there right he um it, i won't go into it but he's like the son of a white man and but he's black and it's like just it's really really yeah, yeah. looking at it with our eyes today yeah. you think this is just what what was Odd. going on weird <laughs> yeah it's very weird but um but you know yeah, we've, we've got to I think we've got to be a bit forgiving as well about exactly yeah. things were different and we wouldn't do the things the way our parents would have in many ways. Well, that's how things. I view it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love family history. So my great grandfather was born in 1885, right? And he died in 1960, right? But he was a man of his time. You yeah, know, he was um, kind of grew up in the South, right? And um, Virginia, Washington D.C. Yeah. sort of area. So yeah. um, looking back at some of the things that he wrote or his views, you know, I would strongly, strongly disagree. Yeah. yeah. But then again, I kind of, you know, I, I have to understand his context yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. in 1895, when he was 10 years old, it was a very different world yeah. to when I yeah. grew up. So it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's as a As you say, context line. is really important and history is mm. really important. So, and I think history helps us understand why previous generations mm. You know, I think we're becoming quite unforgiving and judgmental in many ways, and it may be that part of that is about lack of context or not wanting to, to un, you know, try and understand mm. previous approaches. Mm. You know, the these movements around the world to get rid of statues of people who had slaves and mm. and things like that. I I always feel a bit uncomfortable about mm. we're trying to rewrite history in a way, mm. by, and yet. I believe it's best to have those things remain so that we can continue to learn from mm. them. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, we've become sort of quite... Those sorts of things concern me about expression and history and the use of history and trying yeah. to understand, yeah. Yeah, 
well, our own that, cult. Yeah. That needs to be a chapter in your next um, media book. <laughs> media law book. Yeah. <laughs> maybe censorship. there is a freedom maybe, of expression chapter um, in there, but it's very practical. Yeah. <laughs> Historical censorship or something yes, like yes. that. Yes, you know? yes. Wow. <laughs> and of course, you know, we, we love to patronise when we look at censorship in the past. Mm. Uh, most of our histories of censorship are about, ha-ha, you know, people used to bother about, worry about people smoking a reefer or, or you know, a little bit of buttock showing or something like that compared to what we can and every generation likes to think it's I think more sophisticated and more yeah sort of superior and knowledgeable than the one before but I don't think that's necessarily yeah well part of my hope for this this podcast because it (laughs) it, once it's recorded it's out there like it's possible that it will be listened to in a hundred years you know and they'll look back but I hopefully they'll be generous to us you know I hope they will look at the people and what they were talking about back then because we often talk about like AI and virtual reality and all this stuff that probably in decades from now it'll be like they were they were just they were moving from the horse to the car it looks you know? incredibly <laughs> primitive yes yeah. and, and prehistoric almost yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's good yeah. um can i ask just one last question sure. um so i have heard that uh you answered a exam question in poetry <laughs> is this true and what happened <laughs> it is true it is actually true and it was my equity exam uh-huh. and the uh, lecturer set a question using a poem. Okay. And so I I was very careful about it. I answered in the normal way mm-hmm. and I'd left myself about 10 minutes at the end of the exam. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I'll answer this as a poem as well. So I used my answer and turned it into a poem, which um, I heard years later had, I don't know, ended up in a an academic newsletter somewhere as an example of, and I know now from marking a lot of exam papers that yeah. it's wonderful when you get something that's a little bit different to a relieve, bit original. <laughs> relieve the awful task that is marking. And uh, there was one other person in that exam who also answered in a poem, and both of them were, were sort of published around the world, I think, after that. So... So, uh, yes. So that's that, a hint that for a lot of students, answering poetry. Uh, look, <laughs> just as long as you get the facts right and you answer the question, if you want to add a poem afterwards, I'm sure that'll be that's fine. Acceptable. The question was based on an Ogden Nash poem, so I replied in the same style the and same I made style. it rhyme and I can still remember a few lines of it. Right. To this day, yeah, actually. Can you remember well, one or no, two? Um, <laughs> My lords, why should this nursy tart earn such an estate for a start? She isn't even upper class. The whole thing is a jolly farce. And that's about as much as I can remember. You <laughs> that's can great. Hear it's very basic, but the, it was an issue around whether, as, as the lover of the individual who died, she was entitled to receive the gift he'd left her under the will, or had she right. vagled her way into his affections and, oh, and that's funny. Met, made him change his will or something of that kind. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sure it was memorable for the person marking. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I like, I like, I don't think, uh, if I came out of an exam and felt I'd enjoyed it, I, you know, knew I was probably okay, and I thought mm. it was a good thing to actually feel that you'd enjoyed working out this problem or mm. whatever. I, I think the students today seem to be much more anxious, and I do feel sorry about that. That the, mm. um, that that the stress of exams and so on does seem to be a bit tougher on them these days than it was in my day. But perhaps I'm seeing it from a particular perspective. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I don't know. 
I'm sure there's some studies that could be done on that. <laughs> there's plenty of studies being yeah. done on them. Yeah, that's um, great. Well, it's been great to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time because um, we're sitting here on a Friday afternoon <laughs> evening. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time out to come and talk with me. But I loved hearing um, about the multiple careers that you've had within the law. Um, and that was one thing I was curious about because it's not just one pathway, is it? There's there's many things you can no, do. That's right, Stephen. And thank you very much for the opportunity to, to talk. And I've really enjoyed um, speaking with you and reflecting on on my path and uh, yeah as I say I, I like to use myself as an example for students who might not know what they want to do or ask about what can I do with a law degree and uh, it's just so diverse what you mm. can do and extremely fulfilling uh, yeah of, of worth I think you know being being well, saying worthy is quite a dull word, but it doesn't mean it's dull at all. It's an extremely interesting career, mm. and you know I would highly recommend it. Mm. Um, and the thing that struck me as well, though, we talked about the different happy coincidences and luck, yeah, yeah. but it, it it took an attitude of seizing the opportunity as well. It certainly so I think does. It's a, it's yeah. So for the listeners as well, whether they've studied law or not, yeah. it doesn't matter. No. The point is it's the attitude that you take to these interactions and yeah. what might that conversation lead to. Yeah. And, and no, I so agree that's with that. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought that three years ago I would take another big change in my mm. career. And, and this was applying to be dean of the law school. And mm. uh, here I was in my late 50s taking a big step in my career that I hadn't really thought about before it turned out it involved an interview and a presentation which I hadn't done for years and mm -hmm. and and so I went down that path of new challenges and and have been extremely glad that I've done that so mm -hmm. I would just say to people to always mm -hmm. seize the opportunity if you and and I think especially for women not to think oh oh, I can't do three of those things, I can only do one of them, so I better mm. not apply. I think the thing to do is to to be prepared to take the risk and take a bit of a jump at times and, and see how you go. Yeah, you never know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for coming on. All right. Really oh, thank it. you very much, Stephen. All the best. No problem. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ursula. If you did, you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalogue. Until next time. Mm.